Hi, I'm your host, Thomas, data scientist, data engineer, and you're listening Let's Talk AI. On this podcast, we receive experts to talk about their experience, visions, challenges, with no fear to go into technical details. If you're looking to learn more about AI and related subjects, you're at the right place to make yourself comfortable and enjoy. If you like this episode, please give us a review on your favorite streaming platform, such as Spotify or Apple Podcast. You can also find more content on my LinkedIn newsletter. Welcome, everyone. Super happy to be here today with Adi Polak. Um, this is such an exciting episode. I have so many questions uh, that I've prepared for you, Adi. Um, I know you've been doing uh, quite some podcasts lately, but um, first of all, Adi, how are you doing? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me today. I am feeling fantastic. It's summertime and it couldn't be better. That's awesome. I'm super happy to, to hear that. For the people who might not know you yet, uh, could you describe yourself in a few sentences? Yeah, happy to. Uh, I've been in the data and AI field since more than a decade now. I've been working on both the machine learning side and also building data infrastructure side. I wrote a book on how to scale machine learning, who came out very in a very timely manner, uh, where everyone are trying to scale inference and training, which is great fun. Also discussing uh, deep learning um, and so on. Uh, I have a cat who might jump uh, on the video <laughs> to say hi. Um, That's yeah. awesome. I really look forward to see that cat. Um, and if you catch uh, the cat in the video, um, for those who are watching, the podcast with the video uh, let us know the time code um in the comments and uh and i'll send you a surprise <laughs> um awesome so maybe if that sounds right with you i, I would love to hear uh so you mentioned you're you're writing uh you've, you've been writing a book uh you've you've had a very interesting career that i would like to ask you many things about but first of all uh today um, we're uh, 14th of June, 2023. I would like to know what, what is your goal? What are you trying to achieve? Wow, that's a really, really good question. What is my goal? Um, so somewhere midway into my career, I realized that education and everything around tech should be more accessible to people. Uh, so my goal is to enable as many people as possible to get into the field of uh, data and AI or data and machine learning um, by removing the boundaries and making it super simple uh, for people to grasp sometimes hard uh, technical concepts. Hmm. Awesome. So your goal is very related to education and, and giving access to education. Yes. And enabling people. Sometimes, you know, we can read a bunch of papers and that could be super hard and you need to do a thesis and have a PhD in order to understand a paper sometimes. Um, so really simplifying it, making mm. sure everyone can understand. Mm. That's, that's awesome. That's, that's so cool. Um, I would love to ask you as my second question, can you do a little bit of a retrospective of your career and like key points that have led you to, to today? Yeah, happy to. Um, I started going all in with a thesis in machine learning and working for, uh, for in a lab, in the laboratory with a bunch of 
uh, you know, masters and PhD students, all of us were doing our thesis uh, and doing a bunch of research. Uh, and I was lucky to have uh, my professor working with the field, so working with the industry. And so I got exposed to a lot of different projects. Um, and it really taught me about how to go beyond just uh, writing the paper and finishing the research, uh, making it very, very practical. Like, how do we actually take it and then implement it for the company? Uh, so I did a bunch of projects for uh, the Israeli Defense Force, for Fortune 500 companies, uh, and so on. And I really got a good insight into, you know, who is the persona that I'm building that uh, model or algorithm for? Uh, how are they going to use it? And also, what is going to be the business impact? Um, and this is something that uh, I've seen a lot of researchers sometimes miss. It's like, it's great. We got a research out. We got a paper out. We got accepted into, you know, huge, huge conference. And we have a poster, uh, which is fantastic. And then the question is, how do we make it practical now that we are out? You know, if we decide not to continue um in academy, like now what are we doing? How do we make sure these things that we're building actually delivers ROI for the business? Uh, so that was very early on. And then I got exposed to the world of big data. Uh, back in those days, we still named it big data and data warehousing, um, data modeling, all this uh, world, uh, which I realized that, hey, you know, we have, when, when working with Fortune 500 company and really drilling into their data, um, it's a different challenge altogether. Like the first thing is I need access to the data. The second thing is, oh, wow. <laughs> so many problems, so many missing yeah. values. The structure is not right. Um, you know, there's a lot of work that is more kind of a software engineer or a data engineer, what we call today, uh, that needs to be done before we can even, you know, start doing anything that is a more of a research oriented. Um, mm. And that was really a turning point for me because I realized that, you know, we, I can do all the great algorithms, ideations, research, insights in the world. But then, you know, if I don't have access to high quality data, it's, it's a problem because I'm blocked. Yeah. Um, so that kind of led me into the world of how do we build data infrastructure, big data infrastructures that can actually delivers great quality of data and also enable the data scientist or the machine learning researcher um, to, to have that data available for them for research. Yeah. And... It was a different conversation altogether because suddenly I've been on the other side of the table, mm. right? I've been a software engineer, building the infrastructure, understanding the language of the data scientist and building tools and building services for them, kind of to bridge the gap and making sure we're still building something that is tangible and delivers ROI for the company because I've been working at a company um, at that time. And... It wasn't easy because there is a huge skill gap uh, for a good reason uh, between software engineers and data scientists. Um, data scientists have this fantastic, phenomenal understanding of you know, the domain and the algorithms and statistics, but they completely miss on software engineering skills. 
um, it's not because they can't, it's just because, you know, this is not something that anyone ever asked them to mm-hmm. take on. It's like, oh, now I need to learn <laughs> how to better model my data so I can get faster access to it when my machine learning is doing its iteration during training. Now it works faster. Um, so that was a really interesting conversation uh, to have. And also, how do we do feature engineering in a better way? How to work with the systems? How to leverage uh, staging environment? Also, how to leverage what exists in the organization as well? Because, you know, as a, te- as a data team, so it goes beyond just, you know, data scientists versus data engineers. Actually, a data yeah. team, everyone needs to collaborate and work together. Um, the data team usually serves more than just the data scientists. So at that point, a lot of the data scientists were brilliant to start learning the tools that we used in in the data team and saying, oh, okay, now I don't have any knowledge of Apache Spark, for example, but maybe it's a good idea for me to start diving into it because I see everyone here in the company is using it. Um, and if I want to get access to the data, I better learn it. Um, and so this is how it begins. So I created an in-house course, uh, to train everyone, uh, it was tailored to data scientists and then actually the chief architect joined and a bunch of other folks joined. I was realizing, oh, wow, this is bigger than, you know. This is bigger than just this. There's like a huge skill gap and everyone wants to better understand what it is that the, you know, the data engineering are doing and how to optimize it and how to, how to leverage it because that gives them access to data and the ability to process the data because there is a cluster in place, right? We're already managing the cluster and making sure it has good performance. Um, and that was kind of a very interesting insight into... Uh, dynamics of a company, dynamics of R&D team, how to work together, uh, and really, you know, understanding of the the needs uh, that these things should be simplified so more people can get access and, you know, better uh, tools also. So it was a lot of very interesting uh, insights uh, that, I learned and also that took me um, some time to put everything together uh, in, in a book um, that just yesterday crossed uh, 1,000 people uh, that bought a copy. That was fantastic. Congratulations. That's Thank awesome. You. Yeah, 1,000 copies uh, were sold, um, which I'm, I'm very happy because it means it serves people and people are interested in, in this uh, and it really you know, solves a, solves a problem. Um, yeah, and I'm doing a lot of, uh, since then I've been doing a lot of public speaking, creating content, so more and more people outside of the organization that I work for can learn and grow in their field. And we've seen, you know, Apache Spark explodes and TensorFlow explodes and PyTorch explodes and all these fantastic technologies uh, today. Hmm. Um, yeah that's awesome that's such an amazing journey um and i have so many questions on each part of this journey 
Um, but you said something about that um, about software engineers and data scientists. If I'm not wrong, you you started as a, a machine learning uh, research researcher, and then you went for a software engineer job, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, and then you grew up. Um, you work a few years at Microsoft. Is that correct? Yes. And so my question is a two in one question. Everyone knows I love to do two questions in one, but you mentioned about the difference between software engineer and data scientists. Yes. So could you state maybe a bit of what is good about a software engineer that is missing in a data scientist and same question, but the other way. And further than that, how did your experience at Microsoft changed your vision or impacted your career? Yeah. Um, well, there's a lot of best practices that comes from software engineering that I believe a lot of data scientists can leverage for better collaboration. Mm -hmm. um, you know, using a proper IDE with everything that they need, plug in, using a cloud service to train their model so they can actually train at scale and get access to all the hardware that they need. Um, I've been working with some data scientists who always purchased new processors. <laughs> and today, actually, there's a cloud. So you click a button and boom, you have this new you know, NVIDIA GPU processor yeah. to take advantage of. Of course, you need to limit the bill because... It exactly. is. There, there's, there's a price, but it's much faster than going and try to shop for a new GPU and then installing it and going through that process. Yes. Uh, so definitely leveraging the cloud, definitely going beyond one's laptop uh, is critical. And this is something software engineers are doing frequently when they develop software. They have their own environment, dev environment in the cloud. They have the staging environment and so on. Um, so just some of the things. There are many more practices around testing, reusability of code, um, clean code, uh, you know, a bunch of them uh, to make sure it works. Um, using tools that are already scalable so they can later on take it into a staging environment and into production and not just scripting something and putting it together in Python uh, without the ability to later go back and revisit after six months. It's like, oh, you know, people forget what they did. Uh, so it's better to have it in a way that it's clean, well-organized, so they can go back and revisit what they did. And also their team can collaborate on that. Um, on the other side, from data scientists to software engineering, there's a lot of things to learn around statistics um, and around... Um, domain understanding, having a good understanding of the domain. Uh, so for my thesis and a lot of the research I did, I worked in the cybersecurity domain, which is a very specific domain. I work with uh, network traffic uh, and system calls. Um, and after that, I went to do software engineering, again, for a company that built you know, infrastructure and tools for security purposes for their networks. So it worked really well in terms of understanding the actual use case and what is the data that we're dealing with. Uh, so data scientists usually understands the domain better. They understand the problem space better because this is what they do. They need to do the research and develop 
something that would solve this problem or automate a process. And software engineers don't always have the time to uh, to do that. Um, and sometimes, depending on the use case, this is like a big caveat here. It's like really depends on the use case. If they will know the domain that they are interacting in, um, they can sometimes develop a more efficient software, more efficient code, because um, they would know the edge cases better um, and so on. So, for example, if you work with networks, you know, IPv4, IPv6, how do you filter, what do you do? Um, and understanding how IPv4 and IPv6 behaves can really help uh, software engineers. And again, it's not something that is not accessible to learn. It's just a matter of saying, okay, I'll dive into it so I can better understand instead of, you know, asking for full definition of what this software needs to do, including the patterns matching and, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Or detecting, you know, credit cards over the network and, and things like that. That Sometimes when you create a software that defends uh, a network you need to do. Um, yeah, these are some of the, the things. And then you had another question, which I forgot. Yeah, sure. Oh, thanks, first of all, for this question. Uh, and, and my other question was regarded to your experience at Microsoft and, and how it impacted your career. Um, yeah, so Microsoft is a huge, huge organization uh, and different people find themselves in different places. Uh, for me, I worked very closely with the product teams and that truly impact my my career because I got insights into how product teams develop strategy, how the business looks like, um, how do you develop more impact, how do you build a work plan that is tangible but still make it very agile. Um, so, you know, under commit, over deliver, this is usually what big corporates go for. It's not necessarily true for small startups or the state startup, but big tech uh, are usually going, or big startups also are usually going with with that approach. Um, So how to build a road plan for five years, uh, how to develop a strategy, how to develop a mission, a vision, values for the team, knowing that the values could change according to what is needed to achieve uh, also was a big big thing that uh, that I learned and uh, I worked with some of the best and you know developed those things also um so it gave me a more uh a better view of the whole system uh and Microsoft has a very interesting approach it's like you know not one team is developing everything it's like one team works on one product and then there's a hundred products uh that you know the company is building like this a huge, huge portfolio of products. Um, some of them are internal products that serves uh, internal R&D and internal stakeholders. Some of them are external uh, that serves the population and the Microsoft customers. Uh, so it was really interesting to see that diversity in that portfolio. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone today and, you know, Microsoft CEO also speaks about it in very, you know, he shares it a lot, how diverse uh, Microsoft investments are. And I believe, you know, especially during this type of market, making sure you're diversifying your investments uh, as a company is key. 
Um, and I also got some fantastic insights from, you know, executive on how they build their portfolio, how they're managing their budget, which was super interesting to, to learn. Um, yeah, and managing a team it was the first time I took on a team. Uh, and Microsoft is known to have one of the best training for managers in the world. Um, it's six months, uh, but then it goes like it continues. So it's very, very interesting. It's very intense. Um, so I learned a lot about managing a team, building a system, how to build trust, uh, how to make sure everyone's collaborating and delivering impact, how to make the tough conversations, how to give feedback, um, you know, everything that comes with, uh, with management responsibility, how to manage up and so on. Uh, so it was very good experience, highly, you know, if people have the opportunity to join one of the big uh, tech uh, because they want to learn how things are getting done at a massive scale and want to get, you know, hands-on training and um, work with some of the big, you know, some of the smartest people on planet Earth. Uh, I highly recommend it because it really is um, different than anything else I've seen. That sounds wonderful. Thanks for sharing uh, this this journey. And, and I like the fact that you really highlighted um, all the learning that you got from from working at Microsoft. And it really enhances what people should be looking for to learn uh, at the beginning, well, the beginning and in, in, in their career, uh, I feel, because each of those points, we, we always... Uh, tend to talk uh, um, about like technical aspects of things, but you mentioned so many valuable points like planning management and so many other things that you mentioned that I felt uh, were very valuable. Um, so thanks a lot for sharing. Um, now I'll just uh, dive right into another subject, which is your book. We can see your book just behind you if you're watching this podcast with the video uh, with the little Groot. Um, I love Groot, by the way. Um, I mean, who doesn't, right? Mm -hmm. So your book is called Machine Learning with Apache Spark. Mm -hmm. um, what I would like to ask you first about the book is what can people um, look for in the book? Because you mentioned about your journey and what you learn. And we, we know that the name of the book uh, is like, okay, it's Spark, but... It might also have a big part of what you've learned, your journey. And, and so what can people expect from this book and how could it help them achieve uh, better systems at scales and more things? Yeah, so it goes way beyond Spark. Um, up until probably the midsection of the book, we I talk about Spark, explaining how things work, what is you know what type of deep learning can you do with Spark, and also what's the limitations. Because being very frank, you know this is uh, there are some limitations, and we should be aware of that when we are choosing and working with the technology. Um, and also discussing how to manage kind of end-to-end -end machine learning workflow, which is critical because if we don't think about the end-to-end, -end, we will never reach the stage of actually having our model in production running and serving our customers. So having that in mind, building a plan, uh, working towards that is also uh, very critical. Um, 
And then I'm diving into more advanced topics while showing, showcasing with code samples and uh, deep explanations on how to work with text and how to work with images. There are more on the deep learning uh, side of things. Also how to, you know, uh, what are ensemble learning? That is a more advanced uh, topic of the machine learning space. Uh, dimensionality reduction, um, random forest, you know, gradient boosting, um, and how to do uh, distributed training with TensorFlow and PyTorch. Um, and I've been told that it's probably the first book that actually covers that because there's not a lot of knowledge out there on how the distributed TensorFlow works and how to go about that. Either if you're, you know, you're doing data parallel or you're doing algorithm parallel, if you need to have billions of parameters or, or what's not, um, it dives uh, into those um, to make sure the readers can apply those techniques as well as they grow and develop uh, in their career. Um, and it was also kind of a journey I went to, and also I worked with some customers that went are still going through that journey. And actually, just last week, I had a conversation with a, a CEO of uh, um, of a super interesting company that are processing uh, images, uh, and he said. You know, we needed that because we work with Spark, and now we also want to add PyTorch um, on top of that. Uh, so, and we couldn't find anything. So I was like, okay, I'm, I'm excited that that it serves you. And he bought a copy for everyone in the company, which was uh, <laughs> really great to hear that it's it's helpful and it's uh, it's useful for them. Um, yeah, and lastly, the book finishes with the different deployment patterns and observability. How do you observe your model in production? What is data drift? What is concept drift? Um, what are the different statistics measurements that you can do with sliding windows in order to understand if that's the right time to you know, reiterate your model and uh, get a new model in place? Um, what are the pros and cons of working, deploying in real time versus deploying in a batch, um, deploying it on one machine or, you know, as part of an existing service or as its own service, right? We've been using a lot of things like OpenAI, cognitive services, and so on. We know we interact with these APIs because they are deployed as a service. So how do you create that inference and still making sure you're serving, uh, you know, the user while understanding that there is inherited difference between the hardware sometimes that you need also. Um, so really diving into all the, all the things that are important and sometimes uh, people are missing when they develop their plan or their strategy in order to, uh, you know, build the, the services, really taking another step in. Um, and I guess what's interesting about it is this book started at, uh, 2019. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, it came out just when AI is booming again. And actually, it's important to be able to scale your machine learning applications, either for inference or for training. Um, and it really shows that, you know, kind of as an industry, I believe we're kind of in a cycle of 
data and AI and it was data a year ago, but now it's definitely AI. How do we enable it? Or the application that we're building um, models, models now, or a lot of them are open source, which is great. So now we're actually looking at the more, um, the end-to-end machine learning workflow going beyond just the training because we have those. How do we take it into uh, the next step? Like, can we take an existing model? If it's a deep learning, right? We have our neural network. Uh, we can add our own layers, right? On top of them. Uh, so we can actually take existing model and say, okay, I just need to train that one part in order for it to fit my uh, business problem that I'm solving. Uh, so how do we do that? And how do we take it into uh, the next step? Um, yeah, and it was a really great journey uh, writing that book. And I'm really thankful for, you know, tens of people that did review and, and gave constructive feedback and made sure to uh, that it's actually written in a simple way. Uh, so I had an interesting mix of reviewers. Some of them are more advanced. So I make sure, you know, everything is tangible, it's accurate and so on. And some of them are more new uh, to the industry to make sure it is accessible. Hmm. Hmm. So this is super interesting. Um, to be honest, I have so many questions in my mind that I'm not sure. Uh, where do I want to go right now? Because you mentioned so many things that fascinates me. Uh, let's start with, uh, you mentioned observability. And we're going to do uh, an episode uh, beginning of July with Andy Petrella. I think that uh, you've talked with him for um, for the review also of this book, but also he's going to release... Um, um, his book um, about observability. So we'll uh, discuss that with him further. So I won't ask you about observability, if, um, except if you want to, to mention something. Um, you mentioned so many great topics. Um, so I feel like what I would like to ask you about um, is how do you get the knowledge and expertise to talk about all of this and capture the big picture while being specific in each of uh you mentioned you focus on on deep learning such as dealing with images uh texts um how do you get to a point where you have enough of vision on the field and the industry to be able to write all this expertise. And let me uh, push this question forward. Like, how do you approach, because you've been a search, you, you've been um, working in research, but you've also been working with products you mentioned earlier. Um, so how do you combine the practice and, and experience with the theory? And like, how do you approach learning new things? Yeah, so combining practice and theory and approaching learning new things. Um, if there's something that, you know, been guiding me since the beginning of my career is openness and, and learning. I believe from every person that we meet anywhere, anywhere, you know, everywhere we go, that we can, we can learn something new from that individual. And it could be someone who is educated, not educated. It doesn't matter, you know, who they are, what they do, and so on. There's always something that we can learn from them uh, and grow as individuals. 
Um, so this is a practice I've been taking with me, you know, throughout my career since forever. Um, and I'm, I'm considered a very good listener. <laughs> um, so um, I gained a lot of knowledge myself doing hands-on practicing and also learning from others and collaborating uh, with my team, uh, with, you know, external folks um, and, and, and so on. And being open is, you know, not being blocked in your head by saying, oh, this is the way it should go. You know, there are other ways. There's pros and cons everywhere. There's always um, a risk management and, you know, uh, another way uh, to do things, um, which I'm, I'm very strong believe in, believer in. Uh, and taking those two characteristics and being able to do a zoom in and zoom out into, you know, what exists in the industry, where are we going, what exists in the company that, that I work for, uh, what's the strategy, why is the strategy the way that it is, uh, what did we learn from other companies, um, what did I learn, you know, from, you know, my colleagues or previous colleagues in the field, uh, really gives me a big picture. And so I'm able to zoom out, take a very, very far zoom out, and then also zoom in into the nitty gritty of details and, you know, kind of tell people, oh, you know, your SQL query here could be improved by so-and-so. Um, and I believe this is something that people can practice. The more we do it, the more we are open to hearing, you know, what other people are saying and, joining, you know, all the whole hands meetings and really listening in to, uh, you know, what management is saying, what individuals are saying, uh, can give us a lot of insights uh, into where the company is heading and what is going on in the market. Mm -hmm. um, and understanding that if we'll dive into specifically the machine learning space, what's happening today with LLMs, LLMs are a subset of NLP, right? Natural language processing, um, which is a subset of deep learning, which is a subset of machine learning. So, you know, once we understand that there's a huge boom in LLM, which is a subset of something very specific, it means as an industry, we're kind of really diving deep into this space of, you know, large language models, what they can do for us. And if we'll take one step back and think about NLP, there's a lot of other use cases with NLP that we can think of and say, oh, you know, there might be another opportunity there or there might be something that we're missing. And if we'll take another step back, we'll look into the deep learning space and we can say, oh, there's also a lot of work with images and videos and, you know, detecting things and images and, extracting, you know, people's sentiment and doing a lot of more work on top of that, um, which, you know, could be maybe the next thing, right? We've seen the autonomous, uh, autonomous cars exploded some years ago, and now everyone are kind of like heads down doing the research, uh, continuing to developing the algorithms, and probably soon we'll see another, you know, huge, huge uh, progression in, in that field. Um, so that gives us kind of like the big picture of, you know, what machine learning is. And then we know that garbage in, garbage out, right? 
or with data. So we know another big part of that whole revolution is access to to data. So we can mm-hmm. actually train the model to do things. And so diving into the data, we can find different aspects. It can be structured, unstructured, semi-structured. It lives in a data warehouse. It lives in a data lake and object stores. It lives on, on my laptop, on my file system, right? Anywhere in the world I can capture data. There's There are applications that are more uh, data hungry. Um, and we can really deep di- you know, dive deep into those and try to figure out how can we build the bridges uh, between them. So it gives us kind of, it's enabling us to do, you know, take a step back, look at the big picture and saying, okay, this is, you know, now that I understand that these things are subset and these things collaborate together, now I kind of have these two universe of machine learning and data, but they're actually, there's a good, in, you know, they're, they're lapping because we can't work with machine learning without having uh, data. Uh, we can work with data without having machine learning, but machine learning can make it much easier for us sometimes for, you know, to automate process uh, and so on. Um so once we understand that space, everything that we do, we can always think through and say, you know, now I'm working on that specific logic, on that specific Spark job or application. How does it fit with, you know, the bigger picture of the world of where we're heading towards? Mm. Yeah. So, you know, being able to understand that um, and be curious around that are some of the, you know, I highly recommend it to to people, even though sometimes I know work can be daunting and (laughs) sometimes we're developing the same things. Um, And, you know, we work with tons of legacy code because this is the way we do it. Um, Still, there's a lot of opportunities in everything that we do if we'll open our mind and say, okay, now I'm, I'm, I'm curious about what's going on here. I want to know more. I want to learn more. Um, yeah. That's awesome. A lot of, um, a lot of things to take into consideration, but uh, not losing the big picture is a big part of it. Uh, that's fascinating. Um, the complexity about asking questions on these kind of topics is that it is, so large that we would need to take each specific use cases to like dive into it and understand um and understand every aspect of a project such as data architecture then how do you do data engineering and how do you uh like which compute instance do you decide etc but that being said i have a very specific questions that i would like to ask you it's about prioritizing so let's say I'm a little startup. Uh, we're doing, we're kind of growing, uh, or I am um, a company that is uh, close to reaching uh, a market fit. Uh, for each scenario, there are different plans. How do you go about prioritizing in scaling your data architectures, your all your services? How do you what would you recommend? Like, how is the approach to say, okay, now we're going to open new instance. Now we're going to open new uh, machine learning use cases. Now we're going to do this because uh, it is the right time. Maybe a tough question, but I would like you to ask that. How do you prioritize this process? Yeah. 
Yeah, so let's make sure I capture it correctly. We are a small startup now. We're close to reaching product market fit. And now we want to prioritize some of the work that we do around scaling, architecture, and so on, right? So so if, so if we're going to take an example in particular, I was thinking like, uh, no matter where we are, like, how do you figure out, even if like I'm a big company or I'm a little startup, like what is... Is the, it is is it the same process to prioritizing my scaling, even though like it's not the same components? Like, do you think this is um, a question you could answer, or should we like take from a specific point and and then grow a case? I think we can generalize it, and maybe we can dive you know as we go because all right. You know, there's different approaches that were developed in software engineering and R&D as a general. One of them is waterfall. When I have my yeah. big plan, I'll just going at the plan, knowing that this is the best plan that you can create on planet Earth. Uh, I have, you know, all the oracles supporting me. And so I know exactly what to do and where to go. Um, and I put together you know, a long-term plan and I don't need to iterate on anything. So this is the waterfall. Um, and waterfall kind of became outdated some years ago when we realized, hey, we need to move faster. We need to learn from every iteration and we need to do retrospectives. And so we reached the stage of agile and scrum where actually we're building it on top of very small iterations of usually two weeks. Um And every time we do a retrospective saying, what did we learn during this time? Are we heading into the right direction? Do we actually need to scale our infrastructure? And heading into the right direction uh, for a small business or even in a big corporate, we're just building a new product is, do we get traction? Are people interested in the product? Are people buying our product? Do we have new customers? Because I'm not going to open another region of my product, right, on the cloud, on cloud regions just for the sake of having that region if a potential customer would use it. Because it's going to be costly. It means I'm, I'm paying for more machines, I'm taking all my infrastructure. It's great that it, my infrastructure is repeatable, right? I've used Tensor, TensorForm um, and everything that I need, Terraform, sorry, and everything that I need in order to make sure my architecture my architecture is repeatable. Uh, but then actually deploying it means I'm just paying more money for cloud services without customers uh, leveraging my infrastructure. Um, so this is a very you know solid and important point to take into consideration. If there's no customers, I don't need to scale my service. Mm-hmm. I need to have something that works. I need an MVP, a POC, something that looks good. But right. yeah, works in my machine, you know, one machine doesn't need to scale, but it's accessible. And once I'm starting to onboard new customers, I can start scaling it according to my customers' needs, right? So I'm tailoring it in a way that my customers are happy uh, and they have the throughput and everything that they need uh, for it. Mm. So this is, a, you know, one thing about infrastructure and, and about scaling. Um, when talking about machine learning, I guess this is slightly different because scaling machine learning can be also scaling the training, which means I have lots of data and lots of parameter to train my model. And then there's the inferencing. So if I have no customers, maybe I need one instance. So when people are checking out my platform, they have access and they can say, okay, this is something that, that I want. 
And so how do we, you know, we get on board full time and take it to the next level of actually using it? Uh, so this is when I need to look into inferencing at scale. Uh, so now I need to serve more customers. And so my model needs to be deployed in a way that it actually uh, available uh, for the customers when they need it. So this is a slightly different conversation um, altogether. Um, yeah, so I highly, you know, agile, I believe, is the better way to go today. And sometimes even if we wanted to drill down into uh, smaller granularity, I would even go with experimentation. Like two days, one day, let me just see that, you know, what I build with Terraform, actually I can deploy it on, on that region. Okay, cool, I deployed it, I got something into the system, now I'm turning it off because I don't want to incur all, all the cost uh, of actually keeping it, keeping the lights on for something that it's not being used. Mm. That's super interesting. That's super interesting. Um, I mean, I could go on and on and on. Uh, I think I'll, I'll do one more question regarding these, and then I will do the three little questions that I always do at the end of the episode. Um, and not that I want to shorten this episode, but uh, I know you have uh, other meetings to attend. Uh, so um, my question is, uh, and thanks for sharing like how to approach scaling. And you mentioned like having an agile approach, doing sprints of like, for example, two weeks. Of course, it changes based on what we're doing and, and what we want to achieve. Uh, my question is, how do you define the right KPIs to monitor, to evaluate what we're doing? And I know this could be a question like to be answered in like two hours when we can do an episode only about that. But maybe can you share some insights about KPIs? Yeah, wow. So... There's a whole philosophy around OKRs and KPIs where OKRs are more kind of like high level and KPIs are very metric driven. You need to see the numbers. You want to see the graph of growth uh, and so on. There are lagging KPI, KPIs that we cannot control directly, right? I'm developing something, but then, hey, there's no customers. So it's kind of like a lagging KPI if I don't fully responsible for bringing in customers, for example, and closing deals. Um, so I believe it's something also that's important to track. But yet again, it's a collaboration between you know management and leadership uh, around who owns which KPI, which KPI is a lagging KPI, and which KPI is, is uh, something that we can actually control. Um, and also seeing the connection, the connecting point. Uh, in R&D, we can develop lots of code. But then the question is, does it actually serve the customers in the way the customer expects to be served? Right. Um, and if the answer is yes, this is great. But if the answer is, you know, we build a bunch of infrastructure for the sake of building a bunch of infrastructure, then there is some productivity challenge because at the end of the day, R&D needs to deliver impact uh, and needs to make sure they're building it for customer. And still, it's kind of a combination between short term and long term, short term, making sure customers are onboarded and happy long term. The future customers are going to be happy also uh, and onboarded. It's going to be easy to or simple to um, manage the, the software and, and the infrastructure um, as well. So. KPIs are very interesting. I always look at lagging versus KPIs that were 
impacting. And also there's a notion around operational KPI. So when you build a system, you need to think about the different pieces of the system and how those impact the end results. And so this might not be, you know, the KPIs that people say, you know, I'm measuring it on a daily basis, but it does, it can, especially for long-term yeah. Uh, KPIs, it can give you a better understanding if you're heading into the right direction or not. Because if those are not changing, maybe you want to change the activity that, you know, the tasks that people are working on and the actual, you know, activity that the company is, uh, is doing, uh, change direction uh, to make sure it is, you know, being addressed and you're actually heading to uh, the right direction. Thanks you so much, Heidi, um, Adi, for sharing all this knowledge. Uh, I think we could go on for hours. Uh, I have so many questions about um, both the book, your career, uh, your vision. Um, yeah, your, your journey is very inspiring. So thanks a lot for, for coming on the show and, and sharing with us. Um, my, my last two questions would be, uh, how can people contact you and like access uh, the book or your website? Like, Where can people reach out? Yeah, so LinkedIn is probably the best platform to connect. I'm also available on Twitter, but then I can be a little bit slower to respond. Uh, so if you want to connect, happy to connect over LinkedIn. If you have any more questions, things that you want to dive deeper, you know, would love to, to share what I know. Uh, and for the book, the book is available on Amazon. You can get, you know, uh, ebook edition, uh, a copy, um, and also... You know, if you are in Data and AI Summit, I'll be doing um, a book signing. Uh, so you're most welcome to come say hi. And, you know, I'd love to, to give you a signed copy of the book. Awesome. And last question, Adi, would you have a message for the Let's Talk AI community, for people uh, who, are, who are listening? Any kind of message it can be personal, it can be professional, it can be whatever you decide. Yeah, um, think big. That's it. Thanks a lot again for coming on the show and have a great day. Thank you so much, Thomas. It was great. Congrats. You've made it to the end. I hope you had a great time and that you learned a few things. To learn more about AI, you can subscribe to my newsletter or check the blog. And to support the podcast, you can give us a review on Apple Podcast or Spotify. You can also share it with two friends, colleagues or family members that might be interested. I wish you to have a wonderful day. Bye.